the spring after the flood, we were getting ready for spring runoff and we didn't know how the creeks were all going to act because they still had a bunch of sediment in them. And so the flood risk for the community was even greater. We ended up going door to door in certain neighborhoods, knocking on doors, talking to residents about, hey, we want to give you this entire community guide to flood resilience and make sure you know what you need to do and get you signed up for emergency alerts in case there is a flood. And I remember knocking on this one door and this woman answered the door and her kids were sitting at the dining room table and she invited us in and told us this story of the night of the flood for them that they were getting ready for bed and the kids' bedrooms were down in the basement. And her son said, mom, I don't think I should sleep in the basement if it's going to flood. And she said, oh, it's not going to flood. It's going to be fine. It's just raining a lot. Let's go to bed. And then she woke up at two in the morning to her kids screaming and she came downstairs and her kid's bed was floating in the water and they race upstairs. And in that moment of panic, she said, you know, how, how did you know that you weren't supposed to sleep in the basement if it's going to flood? And he said, mom, they taught us that at the water festival that the city and CU put on every year. And I'll, I'll never forget that story. I'm Kate Stanek. And I'm Leah Kelleher. The first voice you heard was Deputy City Manager Chris Mestruck. You're listening to Let's Talk Boulder. First off, a belated Happy New Year to everyone listening. It's been a minute since we put out a new episode, but nonetheless, we're picking up where we left off. Last episode, we looked back at the 2013 flood. For those of you who weren't in Boulder or who've never heard of it, the 2013 flood was a historic natural disaster that impacted communities across Boulder County. It damaged homes, roads, trails, businesses, entire parts of our community and neighboring towns. If you haven't listened to that episode, we suggest you pause this one and go give it a listen before continuing. This episode, we're taking a closer look at how we've recovered from the flood, And we're digging into flood mitigation, prevention, and preparedness, and lessons learned from the 2013 flood that have made our response and recovery stronger. When we left off, storm clouds had lifted, and first responders were rescuing people who'd been displaced from their homes and moving them to shelters. Once people were safe, folks across the city got to work assessing damage to important infrastructure and volunteer groups started to form. And at the time, we had no disaster recovery plan. We have lots of emergency response plans, but no disaster recovery plan. So we were figuring it out as we went. So that very quickly pivoted to, okay, what are the impacts we're seeing in the community? So it was like, hanging on at the beginning. And then it was a lot of conversation of, okay, we have to start to put organization to the chaos that is happening around us. Everything is off the rails from a recovery perspective, and that's the marathon, not the sprint. This is Mike Chard. He leads the Office of Disaster Management, which coordinates response and recovery to disasters, like floods, in the city of Boulder and Boulder County. This marathon, as Mike put it, started with assessing damage caused by the flood. 
We talked about this a little bit in our last episode. The city started assembling teams that traveled around Boulder, evaluating and recording flood damage to buildings, roads, bridges, critical infrastructure like sewer pipes, trees. There was a lot that needed to be assessed. These assessments were incredibly important because the Federal Emergency Management Agency, or FEMA, was coming to town. Getting financial assistance from FEMA is a complicated process that requires carefully documenting damage, coordinating with their representatives, and following their procedures. It was unlike anything the city had done before. So there was a lot of time just spent trying to learn what we needed to do next. What was great is communities from all over the country reached out and just said, we went through it. What do you need? I think it took FEMA back a bit that, wow, this is some pretty incredible damage. And it ended up doing $257 million in infrastructure damage to roads and power grid and storm sewer and sanitation systems. With assessments complete, the city was looking at an incredible amount of damage and a massive bill for repairs. 15% of paved paths, more than a third of our parks, and almost all of our open space trails were damaged by the flood. And that was on top of damage to homes and yards. 14% of Boulder's households were affected by the flood, causing over $300 million in private property damage. The damage felt overwhelming. But with the knowledge of what we needed to repair, we could start building a recovery strategy that guided the next few years. It was about a a month after the flood, we had the city council adopt recovery objectives for the city and the community. And then we framed all of our work around those five recovery objectives. Those objectives were to help people get assistance, restore and enhance our infrastructure, assist business recovery, focus resources to support recovery efforts, and learn together and plan for the future. This was a great step forward, and repairs and redesigns were already happening, especially to washed-out creeks, rivers, and roads that could weaken how prepared we were for the next emergency. We had goat roads, as we called them, you know, two tracks that you couldn't even get a fire truck up. I got assigned to figuring out how we're going to deal with all the creeks and rivers in the county that were gouged out and had blowouts in them because spring runoff was going to happen. And if we didn't get in there and start fixing that, then we were going to have a second problem of flooding once the spring runoff hit. So you went from that set of problems into the next set of problems. One of the first problems was debris. You may recall from last episode that the flood waterlogged homes, tore tree branches, damaged cars, and left a layer of mud across some parts of the city. A lot of people were left with water-soaked stuff damaged beyond repair, stuff that needed to be thrown out before it started to get moldy. We very quickly realized we had a debris challenge on our hands, and so we quickly deployed as a city dumpsters into some of the city parks. Every single one of them, I think we put 17 out in the community, the big giant roll-off dumpsters. Within an hour, every single one of them was full, and the parking lots were just filling full of stuff. And there was no way you were going to turn people away, right? So very quickly, we realized we're, we're in a much bigger situation here and that we needed to do curbside debris collection. At the end of the day, an estimated 720 tons of creek debris were cleared. The assessment and repair list went on and on and stretched across our community, from neighborhoods to our trails. Here's Chad Brotherton 
He works on visitor infrastructure with our Open Space and Mountain Parks Department, or OSMP for short. Over 100 miles of trails had at least minor damage, and that's out of 145 miles of trails at the time. 40 miles of trails were significantly or severely damaged. Some of those had a three to six foot deep rut, so you could literally stand in it and it was deeper than a person. We had to have the system closed for many days, weeks, while Chad mentioned we were doing those assessments on the trails and people hear they're grieving and then they also couldn't get on the trails. This is Janelle Freeston. She oversees our OSMP volunteer services team. They wanted to get out there. They wanted to walk around. That's how they wanted to be able to process what had just happened. And we were saying no. I mean, we had barriers, closures. The majority of the folks did. You know, they, they went somewhere else. They went to a trail that was still open. But for folks who were you know, maybe the one, two trail was their trail or Gregory Canyon was their trail or Chapman Drive. These are all trails that we had to close down access to another trauma on top of the flood for them. Yes, we had to do those closures. We had to do the assessments in order to get it right with FEMA and everything like that. That had to happen. We wanted to keep people safe first and foremost because um, there were some really dangerous conditions in there. What we did learn, though, that helped us with COVID, I'm jumping years later, There was a split second when COVID was happening, you know, in March. There was a thought, should we shut down the system? And we're like, you know what? No. (laughs) We can find a way to do this safely. People need to get out on the land when there's any type of disaster going on. You're going to hear a bird singing. You're going to see something you maybe never recognized before. You might meet a new person. It just, it forces you to get out of your headspace and, and look for something new, look for a new possibility. Our staff ended up leading 100 hikes to the public after the flood to both interpret what happened and then just to have that space for healing. By November 2013, we had opened up 108 miles of trails. Granted, they might not have been in the same condition that they were in the past, but um, at least they were open to the public. We were, you know, getting visitors out there again. And then by the end of the year, about 95% of our system was open. With what had happened, that's pretty quick turnaround. (laughs) Um, So hats off to all the staff that were here. But we had a completely different system. And we started working with FEMA to identify which projects could qualify for reimbursement. You know, we were looking at like probably close to $10 million worth of damage. It was clear that it would take years for the city's open space system to recover from the flood. And it has been years, filled with more than 100 repair projects across many trails. This brings us to a theme that kept coming up over and over again as we talked to the folks featured in this episode And that is the power of volunteers. As we talked about in our first few episodes, so much of our ability to withstand emergencies is tied to relationships. Relationships between neighbors, government agencies, and in the case of the 2013 flood, entire communities along the Front Range. These relationships allowed Boulder and other communities to quickly react to the flood, clear debris, repair trails, to recover. Our department really saw firsthand the true power of volunteerism. 
even before the, the last raindrop fell in Boulder County, our phones were ringing off the hook. We had this huge volume of water and then a huge volume of people in, in support of folks wanting to help. Before um, the end of the year, over 700 volunteers helped on 40 projects. And then within five years, for 1,400 volunteers gave over 8,000 hours on over 120 projects. Neighbors, community members, individuals, businesses, you know, again, the volume and how quickly we were turning out these projects was just something new to us that we hadn't learned before. There were a lot of community organizations that came together after the flood and new ones that spontaneously formed. The Boulder Mudslingers was a group that formed on its own to help people dig mud out of their house. And they quickly got thousands of shovels and buckets and rakes, and then they needed to figure out a place to store them. And all of a sudden they've got a giant shipping container of stuff behind Target, and then they're organizing volunteer events to help people clean out their house. With the influx of volunteers came concerns around safety. Was it safe for people to be clearing out mud that could be contaminated with harmful chemicals? What if a volunteer got hurt somewhere first responders couldn't get to? But city staff quickly realized the best thing local government could do in a situation like this was to get out of the way and let people help each other. We learned real quickly you don't try to control every volunteer group. All we can do is advise. It's unsafe. It's dangerous. We may not be able to get you. There's no roads. If you get hurt, you're kind of at your own risk. And so hundreds of volunteers rallied to support their neighbors despite the possible hazards. People were so generous of their time, of their energy, of their skills. Just that human power, just getting stuff done in one day, like to be able to see the impact. Some of those projects were very satisfying because you could see, okay, at the beginning of the project, it looked like this and now we've made a dent. That community support for each other is something that we realized was really critical to our community's resilience and something that we focused on fostering after the flood. And it launched the city's volunteerism program in an organized and kind of amped up way and helped to shape how we did community trainings and education after the flood. Now, the city has a volunteer cooperative made up of volunteer coordinators and staff from all city departments who work with community members to match them with volunteer opportunities. It's essentially a one-stop shop for local volunteering, We'll put a link to more info in our show notes. Okay, so to recap, the rain stopped, damage assessments were collected, debris was cleared, and the city went into repair mode with the help of community organizations, city staff, FEMA, and many, many volunteers. Through all of this, we learned a lot. We learned how to work with FEMA, how to better manage debris, and how to get out of the way when volunteers step up to help. It also showed the resilience of our natural systems, which are adapted to deal with flooding. South Boulder Creek was impacted pretty hard, as well as some other smaller wetlands off of Broadway, more towards the southern part of our system in the South Boulder Creek area. So we had folks coming out, literally like taking shovels of gravel and trying to get it out of the, the wetlands and, and back onto the trail. The open space served as a buffer. Just as floodplains serve as a buffer for floodwaters, I mean, there could have been so much more damage in the community if all of these lands were developed on. And nature's pretty resilient, you know? I mean, our lands are adapted to flood and fire. And so it's really us, the humans, that have to get more prepared and better equipped and adapted. Yes, 
And the flood really served as a reminder of how important mitigation work is, work that prevents future flooding and protects our community when natural disasters happen. Leah, how would you explain what flood mitigation is to someone who's never heard of it? Good question. I don't know about you, Kate, but I found that the easiest way to wrap my head around it is to get a sense of what it looks like. Brandon Coleman is an engineer that works on flood mitigation with the city, so I'll let him explain. Our first step is usually identifying flood risk, knowing what how much water we think is going to come down a drainage way, where that water is going to go, and does that impact people's properties and structures? And that's a focus for us as a utility, is really trying to minimize the impacts of those floodwaters on people. We're actually trying to impact those floodplain boundaries with our projects to pull them away from structures and also major lanes of travel. In other words, flood mitigation projects work to protect buildings and roads from floodwaters, especially in floodplains or low-lying areas near rivers and creeks that are more prone to flooding. Usually, flood mitigation means adding things to make a stream more stable and channeling water away from infrastructure, all while trying to maintain how the water would naturally move across the landscape. Maintaining the natural movement of water means more resilient waterways. A really good example of where we've done that is Boulder Creek. So Boulder Creek, particularly through the downtown area, there are engineering features embedded into that channel, but you may not even realize it. If you go down Boulder Creek, like the Whitewater Park, you'll see these big boulders that the water's falling over, and that's really to maintain a stable stream so you don't see big um, movements of sediment or dirt come down the creek, and that creates a much more stable channel. And you'll see those drops even beyond the Whitewater Park, and that's where some of those features are where we're trying to stabilize the stream, but also utilizing the vegetation in the overbank areas where you would see these higher floodwaters. Next time you're walking the dog or taking a stroll in downtown Boulder, pay close attention to Boulder Creek and look for jagged rocks along its edge. They help break down the energy of floodwaters and keep water contained in its normal channel. There are also piles of rocks that almost look like dams. These structures help control the creek and prevent it from meandering out of its banks during a flood. Our bike paths also serve as flood control, helping funnel water away from properties. This flood mitigation work on Boulder Creek was put into place before the 2013 flood. During the flood, these and other flood mitigation tactics were put to the test, and they worked. That's not to say they were perfect, there was still damage, but so much damage was avoided. And Boulder Creek wasn't the only place in town that showed the value of flood mitigation. Goose Creek is a really good example, particularly downstream of Folsom, of where a flood mitigation project was completed in the early 2000s, essentially, and actually functioned really well. Yeah, a lot of people were protected with that project in place. Since the 2013 flood, the city has put a lot of work into different flood mitigation projects around town. Many of them repair damage left by the 2013 flood, while also strengthening resilience to future floods in those areas. One you can check out is along Bear Canyon Creek at Ithaca and Wildwood. There was a historic culvert that is not in use anymore, wasn't needed, but it is an obstruction in our floodways. So 
we were able to remove that culvert and replace it with a more natural open channel that increased the conveyance and also allowed for stormwater improvements. There are a bunch of other flood mitigation projects featured on our website. We'll drop a link in our show notes for those who want to dig into the details. There's also been a lot of work to make our trails more resilient. The flood, it happened all at once. So you could say like 10, 20 years of erosion, you know, 100 years of erosion happened all at once. We learned exponentially because of that. Bridges blew out. Trail roads were significantly at risk. And that was where we saw some of the biggest rutting. And then our legacy trails, which were trails that were never like fully designed to sustainable standards, those were higher risk and had more issues. The sustainable standards try to divert water away from the trail using natural features like rocks. But sometimes it's really hard to keep water away from trails, especially on steep trails. It has a lot to do with how the trail sits on the landscape and either complements the landscape or is almost trying to work against it. When it's working against it, it's too steep. Legacy trails have a tendency to be much steeper and they collect the water and funnel the water down the trail. Looking at our system as a whole, we try to honor the want for some of those steeper experiences, but then whenever we we can, we try to design so that we can make our system more resilient. And definitely a nod to that would be like the Mount Sinitas Trail, we're trying to keep that, but it's very expensive to keep it on the hillside and it's not the most resilient. Ideally, with a sustainable trail, You have a trail that contours the landscape and doesn't change the hydrology of the landscape. It ebbs and flows into the contours and it sheds water naturally and it doesn't collect the water. You may be already getting a sense of how much planning, how much thought goes into flood mitigation projects. There are many perspectives that shape how flood mitigation projects happen on and off our trails. From water engineers to ecologists, the city tries to take a holistic approach to mitigation, because often these projects can come with a lot of impacts and trade-offs, especially for folks living and working in areas where flood mitigation projects are taking place. Here's Joe Tadeucci. Joe leads the city's utilities department, which handles all things water distribution, wastewater collection and treatment, and infrastructure planning. Anytime that we're thinking about a project, there can be significant land use implications or private property impacts. When projects are under construction and when dirt is piled up and front end loaders and excavators and bulldozers are are moving around, it is really impactful. There's a lot our engineering team can do to work with people to mitigate impacts. We put a lot of special effort into restoration to make sure that things come back naturally. And there there are things that have been completed in my career, and I saw them during the construction phase, and now, 15 years later, you would never know that there was a project there. The community will sometimes talk about when we bring up a flood project is, you know, this this project is in this part of town. I live on the other side of town. It does nothing for me. It doesn't help me. And totally understand how how people are looking through that lens. There's an obligation to take those concerns to heart and uh, work with empathy for people who are facing those impacts. But 
that there is an element of doing these projects and developing them for the greater good. Taking concerns to heart means a community engagement process for each mitigation project, providing space for city staff to talk with community members, hear their concerns, and work together to address them. We do want to involve the community in that process. We know these big projects have lots of impacts, so we really do want to hear from the community and try and work with them. And that's really our goal as a utility, to help us prepare for climate change and be resilient when these natural disasters do hit. It's not a perfect process. Sometimes acting for the greater good means removing trees, reshaping the land, and doing things that may not feel or look good right away. But the end goal is to protect each other. All of these flood mitigation strategies and projects have culminated in what we call our Comprehensive Flood and Stormwater Plan, or CFS for short. The plan guides how the city will manage stormwater and flooding for years to come, and it's the first of its kind to be informed by equity and climate change. With 16 major drainage ways, there's a lot of work to do across the city. And before the CFS, we didn't have a way to prioritize those projects across the different drainage ways. There's a lot that goes into how the city prioritizes flood mitigation projects. But what's considered when identifying those priorities and how priorities are calculated has evolved quite a bit over the last few years. For a long time, we used a calculation called cost-benefit analysis. That's based on property damage and values of property. And in Boulder, the values of property can skew those results when you look around the different communities. So we've really brought that equity lens in. With a cost-benefit analysis, the higher the property value, the higher the perceived benefit to do mitigation work in that area. In other words, cost-benefit analyses prioritize the wealthiest parts of town. Parts of the city where there could be $5 million homes. And so if you, if you compare that to a, a single residence in a, in a mobile home community, it's never going to compete. In our new plan, we have 12 factors. One of them is social vulnerability index, where, which is where equity comes in. And we polled the community on how they wanted us to rank those factors. And equity is one of the highest factors. And so we've applied that formula to all of the flood projects and how they rank. And, and they line up differently than they would if we just solely did benefit-cost ratio. The city has the racial equity plan, and sometimes people can struggle to get their heads around, like, what does this really mean? And I think the way we've applied some of the tools from that equity plan to flood prioritization is a super practical example of just how that can influence our work at the city and how it can benefit the community in different ways. Another focus of the new plan is language accessibility, which of course is closely tied to equity. These gaps became clear in 2013. People had flooding in their homes and they went to access emergency shelter and weren't able to do so just because the instructions were only in English. Some of them went back and stayed in their, in their flooded homes. And so as part of our racial equity plan, we have a group called the Community Connectors that can help us connect with people who English is not their first language and 
and really bring them into the engagement, whether it's flood projects or other things the city is doing to have them share their experience and their needs. And so we're constantly learning and trying to adapt. A big part of our comprehensive plan has to do with public outreach and communication. Public outreach can look like emergency notifications on the Boulder Office of Disaster Management website or in-person events with city staff. And for all natural disasters, there are things that community members need to do to prepare themselves for floods. The city infrastructure can't solve everything. And so having a personal plan for your own household and, and your family, just how you'll communicate where you will go, how you'll travel, getting to higher ground, having important documents in order. There's a new normal. We have to prepare ourselves for natural disasters and that they're going to occur more frequently. Since the Four Mile Fire in 2010, the county has had only one month, and it was August of 2011, where we weren't in a recovery or response, to kind of put that in perspective. With this new normal, it comes a need for all of us to prepare. Get signed up for emergency alerts. Go to boulderodm.gov, and we got everything there. Don't wait for an alert to tell you to do something. If you feel like it's bad and it's raining, go to higher ground. If you feel you need to evacuate, leave early. Get to a place of safety and then try to figure things out. There are a ton of emergency preparedness resources on our website to help you get started. We've dropped a bunch of links in our show notes. Go check them out. At the end of the day, so much of this episode and emergency preparedness comes back to the theme we discussed earlier, which is the power of volunteers, but really more broadly, the power of knowing your neighbors, knowing the people who live near you, the people who you walk by every day. The most important thing is, as a community, how do we support each other in those times of crisis and those times of disaster? And, and we've seen that in the disasters we've experienced as a community, that the community comes together and the more we can, as a community, foster that as our culture, that we're going to help each other, the better off we're all going to be. We wanted to close out this 2013 flood miniseries with a poem submitted for our 2013 flood commemoration last year. Here's an excerpt from 10 Years Later at the ANU White Trail by Aaron Robertson. Again, thank you to everyone who contributed to the commemoration last year. Our 2013 selves were so unprepared for disaster. We thought that alone might be our generation's test. It's a blessing we didn't know what else was to come. Calwood and Marshall, pandemic and smoke, isolation and salmon-colored sun. And today, most of us touched by the flood are still here, trying to live thoughtful lives that go with the current, not against. Today, Four Mile Canyon Creek is so quiet it's nearly dry. The sky is true cobalt blue, the clouds pure white, unobscured by smoke. Pygmy nuthatches beep all around us, and the breeze sounds through the ponderosa crowns. All is peaceful, beauty about us in all directions. It's a lovely day to breathe with the trees to accept this gift of sunlight. You can read Aaron's full poem and more on our flood commemoration website. 
The link is in the show notes. This episode of Let's Talk Boulder was produced and edited by me, Leah Kelleher. With the help of me, Kate Stanick, our City of Boulder colleagues, and our friends at the Carnegie Library, a special thanks to all the folks featured in this episode, Janelle Freeston, Joe Tediucci, Chad Brotherton, Brandon Coleman, Chris Meschuk, and Mike Chard. Also, again, a big thank you to all the folks who shared their stories and their poetry with us. Be sure to check out our show notes for links to our 2013 flood commemoration website, flood preparedness resources, music attributes, and more. <laughs>